Welcome to Beyond the Buzz, S&P Global Ratings Sustainable Finance Podcast, where we dive into hot topics across the sustainability landscape. Welcome to Beyond the Buzz. I'm your host, Karina Bendersky, and today's pod is focused on climate change. And I know we talk about climate change a lot on this pod. It's obviously one of my favorite topics. We will have some episodes that go outside of climate uh, at some point soon, but in the meantime, we wanted to focus in today on greenhouse gas accounting of scope to emissions. I know that sounds very technical, but luckily we've got our our my friend and colleague Beth Burks here, who's a director on the sustainable finance team here at S&P Global Ratings, who will help to unpack that. Scope to emissions are emissions associated with purchased energy. And, you know, I like to joke about how reporting and accounting are not the most exciting topics, but the truth is greenhouse gas emissions accounting is becoming a very important topic across capital markets given growing regulatory activity in this area around the world. So Beth is joining me today to talk about a commentary that we put out called Purchased Energy Emissions in ESG Evaluations and Sustainable Financing Opinions. The article dives into the two key ways that entities report on scope to emissions, the dilemma for analysts trying to understand and compare companies' performance, and S&P's views on the effectiveness of various mitigation strategies for companies that are trying to reduce this important source of emissions. So as a self-professed climate nerd, I find this topic fascinating, and I am so, so thrilled to have Beth here to shine some light on this topic. So hello, Beth. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Karina. It's really great to be here again. It's been a while since I've been on the pod. Um, I'm very happy to talk through carbon accounting with you, and in particular, what are we going to do about scope two emissions? Yes, yes. Thank you. Well, first, let's start by doing a level set around how entities account for greenhouse gas emissions and you know maybe just to give some background on you know what are the different scopes of emissions there's scope one two and three and maybe some context around why we're even talking about scope two emissions how material are they in the overall global greenhouse gas emissions footprint Sure. So um, just to begin with, so there are a variety of ways that companies can account for their emissions in their carbon disclosures. A lot of the requirements around the world are still voluntary. Um, However, you know, in the previous years, we've really seen like a growth in the number and types of companies that are disclosing uh, this type of data. Um, In the UK, I sit in the UK. Um, And since 2013, it's been a mandatory requirement that listed companies disclose um, emissions associated with their purchased energy in their director's reports. Um, You know, so it's been it's been mandatory in the UK for quite a long time. And I think it's just important to say that prior to that regulation coming into play, this was quite common practice around among listed companies already. And, you know, since that sort of time, we've seen it spread to other types of entities trying to disclose this information. So 
there's a variety of ways that they can, um, or counting systems that they can use to report on on the emissions associated with their corporate activities. Um, however, the most dominant one that's in use is is called the greenhouse gas protocol uh, for corporates, and that divides these emissions into uh, scopes one, two, and three, as you said. So, scope one, you can just think of as the emissions associated with any fossil fuel combustion that takes place um, on the sites and in the operations of the reporting entity, uh, as well as any sort of additional uh, um, greenhouse gas emissions that comes um, as a result of the, the operating sites that an entity has. Scope two is all associated with purchased energy, as you say. So that's largely the electricity that they're purchasing, uh, but also includes sort of heat and cooling and steam for, for various other companies. Um, and finally, the scope three is kind of anything else that's in the company's value chain. So I, I think we've talked about value chain on the pod a little bit beforehand, but ultimately you can think of it as the financial flows right from raw materials upstream in the supply chain down to sources of revenue that a corporate entity might have. Um, and it includes things that you might not normally think of like employee commuting. Um, so that's that's really this broad three scopes. So scope one is quite focused on the the day to day ops. Um, scope two is really about purchased energy, and scope three is is a much broader and, and much harder to uh, model and understand um, and report on emission category. And so largely, you know, within for example the UK's mandatory disclosure requirements, you see scope three being recommended, but not as as explicitly written within the regulations just because uh, it's much more challenging for companies to report on scope three and tends to be largely emissions outside of, of, of management control, uh, which is why there's a lot of focus now on, on, on scope one and two emissions because they tend to be largely considered to be more within management's control and hence the focus today. So hopefully that gives you uh, a bit of a bit of context. I think absolutely. Yeah, think, happy to yeah, delve think, in more. <laughs> sure. No, I, I, I think we could do a whole another pod on scope three emissions. And there are obviously a lot of people in the market are talking about the challenges in scope three emissions. But to your point, you know, where management has control is scope one and scope two. And so let's talk about scope two emissions in more detail why you know what is the level of materiality of scope 2 emissions for the global footprint of greenhouse gas emissions how important is this well i think it's particularly important because it relates in a lot, for most companies the most of their scope 2 emissions are associated with electricity and and clearly electricity is you know roughly a quarter of global of um global greenhouse gas emissions and so it's really an important um, component of the whole climate transition and one where there seems to be more viable and economically economically and feasibly um, viable solutions to to address it so that's why there's a lot of focus on on this um, with companies it's seen as sort of being one of the areas where there may be more opportunities to tackle this first um, knowing that you know the harder stuff will have to come but maybe that will come later as technologies advance um, and solutions advance right mm -hmm. so okay so let's get into the the nitty-gritty 
what are the key ways that entities account for scope to emissions according to the, the greenhouse gas accounting protocol? And really, what's the dilemma for <laughs> analysts like us that are trying to make sense of all this data? Yeah, sure. So there's two ways that the greenhouse gas emission protocol um asks that companies report scope two emissions on. One is called location-based and the other is called market-based. And uh, really the recommendation is for companies to use both approaches. In location-based, you're looking at a calculation uh, based on the local um, grid emissions of, of a company's factory, for example, if it's accounting for a specific factory and its energy use thereof. So you're, you're looking at kind of what are the actual emissions of that factory. In market-based, it kind of starts from location-based, but ultimately it also takes into account any purchasing contract agreements that an entity might have with um, its own utility uh, or other utilities that are providing sort of what they call more, more, most broadly renewable energy certificates and, and the like. So this is where this kind of was brought in in 2015 to allow companies that were securing renewable energy from their utilities, often at a, a pain of premium to do so, um, to really distinguish themselves as, as being actively, um, you know, trying to create a market for renewables. Um, and that was seen as a really positive development in uh, carbon reporting. However, the dilemma that we have today is as, you know, companies then start to set net zero goals and, you know, we're all trying to work towards a global net zero goal, um, the market base may not sort of directly correlate um, with sovereign net zero goals or, or even the global goal. And really, I think that creates a slight dilemma in terms of understanding to what extent the company's um, emissions are, are linked to these kind of global goals. And the second aspect that is of importance to this dilemma is that sometimes companies are not as clear as to which approach they've used or may only disclose one of the approaches and not both. Um, and really, you know, S&P ratings, we see market best practice is to disclose both location-based and market-based, even if a corporate entity is not using a sort of a market-based solution with their utility. Um, and that's really important because it allows us to make comparisons on a like-for-like -like basis uh, based on companies that are distinguishing themselves by securing renewable energy contracts versus those that are not under the two accounting approaches because they do create this sort of like apples and pear situation. So that's that's the dilemma. Having reviewed so many sustainability reports, CDP disclosures, and TCFD reports, I, I think it's pretty clear that the way companies report on their scope to emissions definitely vary in the level of detail. Some just report scope to emissions without any reference to whether it's market-based or location-based. Some will port, report one or the other, and some, of course, report both. Um, for me, you know, it's always nice to see both, of course, um, and from a comparison perspective, I think you're right to say that, you know, location-based kind of gives you more insight into the extent to which a country is, and, and the entities that operate within that country are supporting the overall 
carbon reduction goals under the Paris Agreement, whereas obviously market-based gives entities a bit of ability to distinguish additional efforts that they're making with respect to lowering the carbon intensity of either the grid in their host country or elsewhere. But maybe can you talk a little bit about the challenges with market-based reporting, just particularly in terms of this sort of concept of additionality, which is obviously something that the IPCC has referenced as an important mechanism for ensuring that reductions are having a a real impact (laughs) on the greenhouse gases that are being emitted. Can you just speak to that a little bit? Absolutely. So let me first explain additionality in in this context. And with the IPCC um, definition of additionality, they talk about something called financial additionality. And this is really relates to sort of corporates, market-based scope two accounting, when basically what you want is you want the premium that that company is paying to secure renewable energy contracts to be driving um, additional renewable en- uh, generation capacity. Historically, what we've observed and what we know from from the academics that track this is that the premium that companies and, and, and individuals and consumers were paying for the renewable energy contracts wasn't really sufficient enough to drive additional renewable generation capacity. And, um, you know, ultimately the price was too low. Um, And those investments in in renewables were kind of taking place already. Um, So what you want for additionality is that the mechanism, the financial mechanisms that companies are using uh, to secure renewable energy really does mean that that renewable energy generation would not have taken place without that company's investment. And, you know, you do definitely get that, for example, in on-site renewable generation. So if a company is a large factory and they're installing its own renewable generation specifically for that factory by putting, I don't know, solar panels on the roof or wind turbines nearby, then you know that that renewable generation would not have taken place without the company's investment. It's literally for the company itself. Whereas when you're working through a utility, that utility might have already made plans to make that renewable generation. And it just was sort of the cheapest form to add generation in that area and locality. So you don't necessarily have this condition of additionality met uh, when you're doing it through a renewable energy certificate or contract, something like that. Whereas there are other types where you do. Um, so on-site is clearly one of those examples where it's very e- easy to see additionality. Certificates are one of those areas where it's slightly harder. Um, and as a result, you know what we're trying to achieve with this commentary that we put out was to give our view of that hierarchy, that sliding scale of um, solutions that companies have available to them to reduce their scope to emissions and effectively their overall potential impact on um, you know, helping to spur on the climate transition when thinking about the global net zero goal. Right. So <laughs> I'm glad that you, you switched gears here because I wanted to talk about these solutions. How are entities reducing their 
so scope to emissions. And you mentioned obviously the commentary has this sliding scale of what we think to be the most effective to the least effective. And there's this little spot in the middle around these energy attribute certificates. And there's the bundled and there's the unbundled. And this can be an area that is a bit confusing for people out there. I think it's obvious when you say, okay, We've got a big factory. We're going to put solar panels on the roof. That's going to generate new renewable capacity into the market. That's obvious, right? Or then you have a an, an entity that enters into a power purchase agreement with the utility to build a new renewable energy project. And because of that contract, it makes the development of that renewable energy project viable. Uh, which, of course, speaks to that additionality question. But when you kind of go down the scale and you go to these um, bundled versus unbundled energy attribute certificates, what do these things mean? <laughs> How do they work? Um, we know that entities use these as a mechanism, particularly when maybe you're a corporate and you don't have – you know, the the space to put solar panels on your roof or you don't have the, you know, resource in the area or you're not large enough to enter into a PPA with a utility to make it viable. So this is your only option. So can you speak a little bit to the difference between sort of a bundled and unbundled energy attribute certificate and how we would look at it from an analytical perspective? Sure, I definitely can speak to that. But I just also just want to reinforce what you just said. I think we really acknowledge that there is a sliding scale to this um, and feasibility of the solutions plays in a lot into how corporates can tackle scope to emissions. So as you said, you know, sometimes they just won't have, it just will not be feasible to put on on-site renewable generation. Maybe they're largely um, contained in buildings that they don't own, they're leasing. Um, variety of different reasons as you said they might be too small to be able to do a um, a ppa although we are starting to see what is interesting on the the corporate ppa side is that potentially there might be pooling of uh, various corporates to create uh, a ppa so an equivalent generation that would match uh, the energy needs of of several corporates um, but when it comes to bundled and unbundled certificates, really the difference is, is that bundled just means you're doing it with your own utility, your own supplier, whereas unbundled means it's with a different utility. And that utility may be kind of issuing certificates in the same grid that you're operating in for your, your factory that you're trying to, you know, um, create that renewable energy contract for. Or they may be sometimes, um, and this is again usually down to feasibility of, of the company and availability in the local market, that you may find that companies are buying unbundled certificates in a different country. So the renewable generation assets that they're claiming to um, you know, feed the electricity consumption of their factory might be located in, a, in another country potentially even overseas. So that's kind of where critique of these uh, energy attribute certificates comes from is is whether or not this renewable energy is actually really used by the company. It's it's not always totally clear because um, ultimately they're still just going to get the electricity from the local grid and and that may um, may or may not be decarbonizing at a rate 
um, that's consistent with a net zero pathway for that for that region, um, or or you know towards their the country level um, nationally determined contributions towards the, the the Paris Agreement. So, for that reason, they tend to be seen as um, weaker solutions. However, as we've said at the start, you know sometimes they're the only option. So really, when we talk about it from our analytical approach perspective, we're looking to see the extent to which companies are applying um, similar types of hierarchies. Um, and you do see this. So there's, you know, the all of these options are are available within the science-based target initiative, uh, with the renewable energy 100, the RE100 guidelines. Um, which are various initiatives around, um, you know, addressing scope two emissions allow for these certificates uh, to be used to reduce scope two. But I think it's worth just sort of being aware of um, what that actually means in terms of real world emissions and just, you know, delving in and going beyond the data so that we, we understand um, that companies are applying this in a, in a sensible way, um, in a way right. that sort of takes into account both maximizing real world impact um, whilst acknowledging the unfeasibility of some of the more additional um, solutions that are available. I, absolutely. And I, I always like to say, you know, the data only tells part of the story. It's an important part of the story, but you always have to, to dig a bit deeper to understand what's actually happening on the ground. And to your point, you know, we have the Science-Based Targets Initiative, which is becoming you know, a real industry standard for aligning net zero commitments with the Paris Agreement. And they do, you know, recognize and acknowledge using sort of bundled and unbundled certificates as a mechanism to reduce scope to emissions. So just worth worth looking at, certainly. Um and just and switching gears a little bit because this is this is sort of the supply side strategies, mm -hmm. but then there's also other you know other opportunities on the demand side to addressing your your scope to emissions and and I know in the commentary we have a, a another lovely little hierarchy to to talk through what are some of the the sort of stronger practices so. Can you just share uh, share a little bit about the, the demand side piece of this mitigation puzzle? Sure. So today we've kind of been talking about what we call the supply side. So how do you, where, do, where does your uh, electricity supply come from and how do you modify that? There's off, uh, also the flip side of the coin, right? There's, a, as you say, the demand side. So how do you reduce your demand or shift or adjust your demand for electricity in such a way that it also has... Um, an emission mitigation potential. And we see, you know, the strongest type is really just, it's it's strong and boring and it's usual and it's BAU, which is uh, energy efficiency. Um, but it really does have an impact. And, you know, what we're looking at there, the reason why we put it at the strongest is that it's, it's reserved for cases where a company is going beyond the sort of traditional uh, BAU energy efficiency projects. Um, and that's really important because when you look at climate scenarios or climate future scenarios assume a certain level of energy efficiency. Um, so uh, I think in the commentary we speak to just as one example, the IEA stated policy scenarios is the sort of almost equivalent to their BAU, if I can use that term loosely. Um, 
they have many assumptions baked into that on energy efficiency as laid out by government policies around the world. And so, but they're still not reaching net zero in that scenario. Um, so in the sort of more below two degrees Celsius by the end of the century scenarios, there needs to be even more energy efficiency than what we kind of expect to happen as part of our PAU. And so when we find that a company is making additional efforts to really increase their energy efficiency beyond what they've been able to do historically, then that's where we kind of put that as being one of the more um, strong um, demand side reductions in scope to emissions that, that companies can, can make. However, there's like a few other really interesting um, things that companies can do that could be strong or could have potential depending um, on some of the more nuances and delving a little bit deeper into their strategies. Um, so one we pull out is uh, load shifting, which is really just shifting your electricity demand to different points in the day that could maximize renewable energy's generation output. Uh, we all know that the problem with renewables is that they're variable and um, location to location, you might have peaks at different times of the day where renewables, you know, the wind's blowing. So every, that's that's the, the best generation output. But so shifting your electricity demand, and, and this is not always feasible for companies again, but shifting it towards parts of the day um, where you can maximize the use of renewable energy generation in the grid would be an example of a load shift that would have um, emission abatement potential. Very much depends grid by grid and asset by asset. So it's it's quite a difficult, um, again, it's, it's, all of these things have, have in the stronger end are, are uh, largely constrained by feasibility and practicality issues. There's another one called relocating assets. I could walk through that as well, if you like, which is pretty interesting. Putting assets in different places, I gather. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Moving them to cleaner grids. Um, to cleaner grids, yeah. So, the, I mean, there's all kinds of there's all, all kinds of mm. mechanisms for for reducing scope two emissions or reducing the the carbon intensity of the energy that you purchase. In the interest of time, I was thinking maybe we can close with, you know, there are a lot of people right now who are looking at greenhouse gas emissions. It, it makes my heart sing <laughs> when I hear people telling me that they're like, you know, looking at sustainability reports and trying to understand emissions. So with that in mind, what are some tips that you would give to analysts out there that are looking at particularly scope to emissions and mitigation tactics for addressing them? And maybe you can you can talk that through within the context of the lens of, of our analysts and how we look at this from a sort of ESG evaluation perspective and through our sustainable financing opinions. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So we guide our analysts according to this hierarchy we, that's why we've you know released them to to, to the pu for public consumption because um, you know this is kind of the way we view and analyze scope to um, mitigation strategies employed by companies um, in our ESG evaluations when we look at how greenhouse gas um, performance. We also look at it in our sustainable financing opinions particularly when we're looking at sustainability linked um, instruments and sustainability linked um, debt frameworks, basically financing frameworks. 
And in that, we're looking, you know, part of our SPO, second party opinion efforts, we opine on sort of the level of ambition that a company is taking towards um, addressing its sustainability performance targets, which largely to date, um, a lot of them have included scope one and two emissions in the market in general. Um, so we're using this hierarchy as, as, a, as a way to discuss uh, with the issuers and the entities that we're, that we're evaluating and, and really get to grips with, with how they're implementing the mitigation strategy in order to be able to um, opine on its relative strength versus what we sort of consider to be uh, more in line with the market best practices. One thing um, I'll say is a good piece of hope is that we started to see in a few companies that they're starting to break down how they're addressing scope two emissions. Um, this may seem like another disclosure requirement by analysts to companies, and I don't want to put it out like that because um, I know it is it is complicated, and sometimes just disclosing qualitatively the approach they're taking is 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 sufficient. But you do sometimes see how much is um, being reduced by on-site renewables and the and the likes. Um, and there's a fantastic report that I point to by the RE100, which looks through their members and kind of shows how they've been they've been addressing um, scope two emissions the, using the various uh, different solutions that we've discussed on the supply side so encourage you to to read those if you want to get a sense of of how the pitch is changing over time yes i love i love ending on a on a message of hope uh, i think some some key takeaways here are you know look closely at scope two emissions there are two key ways that they're reported location-based versus market-based and they suggest different things in terms of the company's performance what they're doing and its impact on the global greenhouse gas emissions footprint and the mitigating strategies vary in their level of effectiveness and in their level of feasibility, both on the supply side and the demand side. And I think the key here is look at the numbers, but go beyond the numbers. Um, and there's so many wonderful resources out there. Thank you so much, Beth, for joining us. Highly, highly recommend taking a look at that commentary that we've been referencing. It's called Purchased Energy Emissions in ESG Evaluations and Sustainable Financing Opinions. And we'll link to it in the show notes. Hopefully that was informative for those of you listening. Um, I always love talking to Beth. I feel like I always learn something new every time I speak to her and we speak almost every day. <laughs> but uh, thanks again for, for joining us today. Um, you can get that uh, commentary, I guess, as I said in the show notes, but also on our website at spglobal.com. And uh, we look forward to speaking to you again on our next episode. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Karina. To subscribe to Beyond the Buzz or to view our analysts' research, go to spglobal.com forward slash ratings. Thanks for listening and tune in for our next episode.